It is good to have community in the house. That's great. How do I cut this off? All right. That's great. We are... uh, We have a lot of people coming and going during the summer, and I know that uh, some people are getting their last-minute vacation kind of stuff in and before school starts, but we are blessed on the hindsight of people that go away. We also have people that come back during this time of year, and I would like for all of us to give a warm welcome back to Rob and Shay Mano and their whole family that's here today. And Shay is holding their precious new baby, Gabe, who many of us have been praying for, and God has really touched healing-wise, and he's sleeping right now, maybe. So that's good. If you can sleep through Joe and the band, that's that means God's at work. How about that? No, we miss you guys. We're glad to have you here. They're on the East Coast and uh, serving the Lord's kingdom over there, so you're welcome back anytime. You just need to give a little bit more notice and we'll have Shay sing again. What do we think? That'd be cool, right? So we're going to finish up a series we've sort of been journeying through this summer a little bit called A Reason for the Hope. And uh, Joe shared last week and uh, appreciate the words that he shared. But we're on this verse from 1 Peter 3.15 that says, But in your heart set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. And the ultimate reason for the hope that we have is because of what Jesus Christ did and what we just remembered through worship and the sharing of communion together. His reckless love for us. And uh, he has set us free from sin and he has set us on a purpose. And um, we've been challenging one another to ask questions and not be hesitant to ask questions that you might have, spiritual questions, questions about God, questions that really are doubts and other kinds of points of maybe tension or confusion you have in your life or in a friend's life. We as uh, seekers of God and followers of Jesus should be ready to be able to give an answer for the hope that we have. And to give an answer means you're not hesitant to deal with questions. And so we've been putting this into practice. You filled out cards that had different kinds of questions on them, and we've been looking at some of those. And and one of those Joe touched on last week, why do bad things happen to good people, that kind of deal. Well, this whole thing, always be prepared to give an answer. I'm going to focus on the word prepared a little bit right now because I asked the gentleman that God brought us from Colorado to help us build the wall if he would be able to give an answer for the hope that was with him. And I would like to invite Ed Druliard to come up here. Ed, would you guys welcome Ed? Ed is here with his two boys, Blake and Scott, in the back. And um, Ed, uh, he was a part of uh, our church a couple years ago. You moved to Colorado. Is that right? Here, you're on this microphone right there. You good? I guess so. All right. I love Ed. Ed's got a great, unique personality and uh, love for life and that kind of thing. But Ed has been on a bit of a journey himself uh, as it relates to God and things spiritual. Some of you maybe know a little bit about his testimony, but uh, Ed, share a little bit about how you came to place your faith in Christ and the hope that you have. Uh, It would have started 
14 years ago when I met Terry, my wife, some of you know. I recognize some of you folks still. Um, before that, I didn't know anything about God. I was a reckless mess, having fun, doing what I wanted. And then I met Terry, and she became the love of my life. I settled down, became normal. <laughs> as best that Ed could become as best normal, as I yeah. Could. Yes, yes. Um, wow, sorry. I'm not used to speaking. So, married Terry, coming to church. Uh, in fact, we met the gentleman that married us. We met through Terry's work because she worked at the phone company, and it was really a blessing that we met him. He had us do some premarital stuff, and I think that really worked out for me. It showed me some other things. And then. Sorry. My youngest son, Blake, when he was two, fell out a second-story window. Before that, I didn't really care about God. He's here. He's okay. (laughs) Um, uh, It changed my life tremendously. It took me out of a lot of things I probably shouldn't have been doing, which was a blessing. He's put me down some paths that has been trying, but I just keep battling and looking forward, and that's all I can do at this point. Uh, I've been having a real bad, bad battle the last few, last year or so, and then this wonderful man gave me a call out of nowhere. So <laughs> <laughs> tell him what happened a couple of years ago. Some of the last time, maybe some of you remember Ed. He was he was hanging with. He's actually gave a word of testimony about you know turning his life around with God through the traumatic thing of his son falling out the window and that kind of thing at a men's breakfast. But uh, you headed back to work after that. You had some back issues related to your work as a drywaller and a framer and that kind of thing. And uh, sort of that was getting better. You were getting back to work. And then you had a traumatic moment. And then I got hit by a semi-truck driving down the 91 freeway. None of you, the people that are in this room that know me from back in chorus days and so forth, wouldn't have been able to see me today. I feel and believe if it wasn't for the Lord. I was able to walk from the car. Granted, I was pretty messed up and not knew, and I didn't know it. But through the Lord and the Oikos family. That's right. You remember the word. That's good. <laughs> my, Oikos, my Oikos family, it's been really good. It's been a trying time because of the car wreck. I've, we had to move the family to Colorado wasn't our choice, but we did it. We've been making it, having a good time. And then, uh, yeah. How many surgeries have you had since the semi plowed into him? Because... I've had four. I've had my neck fused. I've had my lower back fused. I've had my left shoulder rebuilt, and I've had my right shoulder cleaned out. I still have one surgery left on my lower hip, on my right side. Um, I live in the pain. You'll never hear me complain. And I enjoy doing what I do, and that is the reason why I came. I didn't mean to rhyme. Sorry if I did. <laughs> but uh, this man here, he baptized me five years ago. Is it when we did this rebuild here? Yeah. And uh, I've always considered this home ever since. Even though I'm not here, this is my home church. That's and good. So when he called, I couldn't, couldn't deny it. I couldn't tell him <laughs> no, even though I hurt. But this yeah. is my home, and... That's why I'm here, and I thank all of you for being here. 
Ed uh, helped us renovate some of this auditorium and did the steel work to hang even these yeah. TVs, that kind of thing. And when we were looking at this new building, you know, we're in there by the skin of our teeth. Many of you sacrificially given for us to make this huge step of faith. It's like, okay, what's our budget for build out? Oh, 10,000 bucks. That doesn't get us very far. <laughs> nope. Good thing you called me. <laughs> and so I'm like, you know, I'm just going to try to track Ed back down. And uh, Ed said, yeah. He says, I think that's sort of a thing that God would have me to do. And I want us to pray for Ed. I'm going to have his two boys come up here in a second. I want to pray for the whole family because, you know, it's not about a building. I've told you folks that. It's about the work God does in our hearts but Ed and his family is a representation of how God even extends ministry in the lives of places. Ed's walking through some legal challenges right now with the semi that hit him and some settlement issues, and they're being delayed, and, and he's not able to work. Probably ever, you know, he's a young man here, actually. Ah, not that young. Come on. 46 is young. If you say Compared so. to me, yes. <laughs> and so, but I, I want you um, as a church family to pray for Ed and Terry and the boys uh, in these weeks and months that there would be an expediting of the settlement issues to be able to move in some directions for his uh, remaining physical issues from this last accident. And I want to pray for two great boys, Blake and Scott. Would you guys come up here? And these are two young men. Uh, that have been on the work site this week watching Dad, and Dad's given some apprenticeship. Would you welcome these two boys here? Thanks for coming up. I don't know if you knew that. And before we get into this, I really want to appreciate everybody that has come and helped me on this build. Five minutes, ten minutes, it didn't matter. It's still help that I can't do myself for what I, we're doing. I told Ed, I said, you just come and boss us around. You tell us what to do. I don't want you lifting those kinds of things. But I've every, already got yelled at five <laughs> or six times. Every, every day this week, we've, we've had about eight guys or young and ladies show up, and that's just been huge. And, and we're making this thing happen, and it's all by um, God's grace working through the connections such as this. And so it's our blessing to be able to pray for you and your family. Will you join me? Lord Jesus, we thank you that indeed... You can work through even the most challenging times in our life, and you can make beauty out of ashes. Lord, we thank you for sustaining Ed's life when that semi rammed into the back of his vehicle, and Lord, for the surgeries that have brought him the ability even to walk up here in front of us and to be able to direct a work crew like he has this week. We together, in the name of Jesus, pray that Jehovah Rapha would continue to heal Ed Drulliard. Lord, for the fusions, other things in his back, for the pain that he carries with him, we pray for divine intervention as a church family on his behalf and for his family's behalf, that you would heal, continue to heal, and make him whole. Lord, he's got a great future ahead of him, especially with his family, and we pray, Lord, that you would bless all of them. We thank you for Blake and for Scott here today, Lord, for uh, protecting their lives Lord, even how you used uh, the tragedy uh, in the fall to be able to bring Ed to you. Lord, we pray, Jesus, that you would bless Terry and her work responsibilities and that whole home. And Lord, as this moves forward in the future for them as a family there in Denver, Colorado, we just pray that you would be glorified through their lives. I know for Ed, some of the just refreshing of his spirit coming to do this, to head back to be the spiritual head of his home, 
Lord, I thank you for that initiative in his life. And Lord, bless him in that and the whole family. In your name we pray. Amen Amen. and amen. Thank you, guys. Thank you, guys. Yeah, one to five. There's your boss right there. (laughs) Thanks, guys. I'm not that mean. (laughs) He's not. He's not. So, why do bad things happen to good people? Well, you just have to play it out and see how God works with it sometimes. There's a Mideast folklore story that's told about a guy who had a horse, and one day his horse ran off. Ran away, and his neighbor showed up, and he said, Man, that's just too bad. I'm sorry to hear about that. Your horse ran off. That's just bad luck. And he says, What do I know about such things? A few days later, that horse returned with 20 wild horses with him. Neighbor showed back up and said, I can't believe that. Your horse returned and brought 20 wild horses with you. That is just incredible, man. That, that is good luck. It wouldn't happen if your horse hadn't run off. And the guy says, what do I know about such things? Man's young son started to train the horses, break them in. And while he was training, one of the horses got kicked by the horse and he broke his leg. Neighbor showed up and they said, man, that's too bad. If you, those horses hadn't come, your, your son wouldn't have been training them and broke his leg. That's just too bad. That's bad luck. Guy says, what do I know about bad luck and good luck and such things? A little while later, there's a group of thugs that came along. And they were looking for young, viable recruits for their gang. And they spotted the son and they were ready to take the son with them and be a part of the gang. And then they noticed the son's leg was broken. And they said, oh, we don't want him. And so they moved on. You never know. Bad luck, good luck, even in suffering, not that suffering is intended by God, but you have to step back and look at the big picture. You never know how God will orchestrate things, whether through the heinous acts of evil or for the majesty of God's love and his power and his grace. God can work good even out of bad things and ed your story is reminding of me of that and um, the fall of your son that brought you to christ and woke you up to god and how his life was spared god's going to bring something from this semi-accident and bring good and one day your testimony will be if it wasn't for that god wouldn't have done this or this wouldn't have happened in my life so how about you the tough questions that we have Always be ready to give an answer for the hope that is within you. Our hope is found in Jesus Christ and him orchestrating and working in our lives. As we get ready this fall to transition from here to there and we continue to reach out, we need to be actively equipped to be able to share the good news of the hope that we have as believers and followers and seekers of Jesus Christ. It says this in Romans 10, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how can they call on him to save them unless they believe in him? And how can they believe in him if they have never heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? And how will anyone go and tell them without being sent? This is why the scriptures, it's in Isaiah, says, How beautiful are the feet of messengers who bring good news. We are the messengers of good news. Every one of us has a story. Every one of us has a seeking after God or an understanding of reality and what truth is. And you can share that story with others in acts of kindness, building a wall, and being able to articulate 
in front of a group of people, the one-on-one, you are the person that God is sending. We are not moving into a new facility to say, hey, come and see us. We are having a facility to equip ourselves to be able to have a missions base of operations to send you out your beautiful feet. Some of you don't think you have beautiful feet. But if you're carrying good news to those who are broken and those who are hoping to find truth or looking for what real success is in life and they've experienced some but it's not what they thought it was, you are the messenger of that good news. And that good news is Jesus Christ. But they cannot be saved unless they know, unless they believe. And they cannot believe and know unless they have good news presented to them. And so the reason for the hope and why we focused on this is not to hinder us from being messengers of the good news. But this is my question. Why are we hesitant to be messengers who bring good news? And I'm opening this up. I just want a few examples. Something maybe you carry with you. Why are we hesitant to be messengers who bring good news? The good news of what Jesus Christ has done. Do I have some way in on that, Rob? Fear of job loss. Fear of rejection. Others. Why do we fear or hesitant to be messengers of good news? Joe? Fear of failure. Like failure of not doing it right? Being wrong. Mike? Yeah, who am I to speak for God? That's your inadequacies. Why are we hesitant to be messengers who bring good news? Other reasons. Yeah, Rosanna. Fear of conflict and argument and debate. Like, who do you think you are with that? Lori? Requires vulnerability. Requires vulnerability to be transparent. Oh, this is who I am. To be able to open up and share sometimes. Yeah. Yeah, not knowing the Bible well enough to speak, some kind of questions or something to be thrown at you or misunderstanding. Any other reasons? Just come to your mind. It's going to be personal. Ron? Fear of persecution. Fear of persecution. What kind of persecution? Well, from those that uh, are intolerant towards uh, Intolerant? That they would look at you different? Categorize you? Yeah. Oh, look at Ron. Ron's one of those. Yeah. I hear you. Other reasons we're hesitant to be messengers of the good news. Anyone? Sure. Fear of change. What kind of change? Oh. Yeah, your friend leaves you like, I don't know if I want this relationship if we're going to have to have those kinds of discussions. Somebody's calling in for a reason. That's great. That's great. I like this live real-time thing happening. This is good. This is good. Anyone else want to weigh in? Reasons, sure. Fear of being judged. Fear of being judged. And how are they going to judge us? By that we're perfect. And okay. So you think you're all perfect if you're sharing that. That's right. So now they're scrutinizing you. Yeah. Fear of acceptance. Fear of acceptance. Are they going to now go forward accepting me from this? Yeah. Anyone else want to weigh in? What's your fear? Go ahead, Shay. Yeah, that's good. You brought that up. (laughs) Just laziness. And sometimes 
point blank indifference. That's why a couple weeks ago I spoke on the whole issue, are people really lost? Do they need to be saved? Do we have the conviction of that? You know? I don't know what it is that maybe holds you back. But I know what holds me back. And sometimes I just am fearful that they're not interested in good news of Jesus. They're just so caught up in other things that I can't squeeze my way into their life with something. But friends, through the ups and downs of life, everyone has their moments where they wonder, is this all there is? Is there something more? Is there a God? And we talked about that from the book of Romans, that the wrath of God, his righteousness, is being revealed from heaven against godlessness, wickedness, because people suppress the truth with their wickedness. Since what has been known about God has been made plain to them, for God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, and his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. That's how he opens up, Paul does, the book of Romans. But he beautifully shares then the gospel that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. Friends, I think one of our biggest challenges today is that it's not vogue or in the mainstream to talk about spiritual matters as it relates to truth. Spirituality and some ambiance of, oh, yeah, I sort of got a spirit interest. But to talk about truth issues, to go directly after questions of doubt and confusion, there is an attitude is like, well, people don't care. Everybody's got their own life. They're busy just trying to make ends meet or you know, have their excursions, whatever they may do. But down deep, there is hunger. There is a lostness. Pascal, who's forerunner of the modern computer, brilliant scientist, says there's God-shaped vacuum in every heart that cannot be filled unless it's filled with Christ and with God. Do you have that conviction? And do you believe that the good news about what Jesus Christ has done is actually good news to take to people? We made mention that uh, God has called us to do this. And I just want to challenge us as a church. All of us are made different. Sometimes one of the hesitancies to bring good news is people will say, well, that's not my calling. I don't have that gift. It says this in Ephesians 4.11, though these are the gifts Christ gave to the church, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the pastors and the teachers, the apostolic people, forerunner people, people that are taking on new ground, Prophetic people, people speaking forthright the word of God and strength and boldness, forthtelling, not just a foretelling kind of spirit. Evangelists, well, I'm not an evangelist. You'll let them do the messenger, the good news. People that are out there giving the evangel, which is what good news means, the story of Christ. Well, I'm not a pastor. I'm not a teacher. But it says that these are gifts that Christ gives to the church, not just to the guy that's standing up front, all right, to all of us. These are gifts that Christ gave, that you just worshipped at the communion table. He has given you gifts. And you could probably align with some affinity in one of these five categories. But then it goes on to say that their responsibility, the church responsibility, is to equip God's people to do his work and to build up the church, the body of Christ. Our goal as a church, my goal as a pastor 
is not to do all the work. In fact, if I'm doing the work of many things, then I am actually missing out on the work God's called me to do. We are called as a church to equip one another, to encourage one another, whether in a life group, in a Bible study group, whether in youth ministry, whether over in children's ministry, with what we're teaching the children, that we are equipping one another to be messengers of the good news. And so we are being sent. We are gathering for the purpose of being encouraged and equipped, being fueled and worshipped, looking at God's word, but then taking God's word through our very life and our deed and our words to people everywhere. Jesus says, it's to your advantage that I go away. If I don't go away, then the Holy Spirit's not going to come and empower you so that you can go. Students, next week, we just need to pray over you as you head back to school, many of you. You are being sent into um, Vista Marietta and to Chaparral and to Bella Vista. You can, you can name all the schools around her. You are being sent as missionaries of the good news. And our goal is to equip you. Joe's goal as student ministries leader is to equip you. And if we're not equipping, then we're falling short. It goes on to say this then in Ephesians. This will continue until we all come to such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's Son, that we will be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. This is what I'd like us to do for the remainder of our time this morning. I'm actually going to help equip you, encourage you to do something. I want you to set your minds on training yourself to be a better messenger of the good news. And part of being a messenger of the good news is not allowing the fear of the unknown or the questions that people might ask to hold you back. We devote our times to all kinds of uh, different hobbies, to different vocational interests, to uh, network shows or binge watching on something. We, we have time. We do what we want to do. I want to know, do you want to become more equipped to be a messenger of the good news? to be able to be sent to give hope to those who are broken and indifferent? Or does time just sort of slip through your hands? Well, I don't have much time at all, Carrie. I'm really busy. I Here, we're all busy. But do we want to devote ourselves to being able to be better messengers? And so for me to end this whole reason for the hope, I want to challenge us to go far beyond anything we just toyed with in just these few weeks. And that is to become a better person to give a reason for the hope that you have. Last week we made mention of this, that behind every question is a questioner. And I gave reference, uh, and it's in your program, in your bulletin, of an online academy that you can take to be able to come better equipped. I had somebody come up to me last week and say, I want to I take that online academy. And this is through Ravi Zacharias International Ministries. I'm very mindful some of you know who he is. Some of you do not know who he is. So I'd like to take you by video to Passion City Church in Atlanta, Georgia, a few months back. Passion City is led by Louis Giglio, which was, is one of the most prominent, passionate kind of speakers, young adults otherwise. And he invited Ravi Zacharias and Ravi's associate, Vince Vital, who oversees the RZM Academy, to come and to share with his congregation. Now, even though I know Ravi, and he was my professor, and, and some other kinds of connections through the years, went to India with him, I can't call Ravi and have him come and to be a part of speaking here. 
I suppose I could try, but his priority is being able to give an answer to the questioners on uh, university settings and some of the hotbeds around the world, and his life's pretty full and busy. But I can show you how he interacts with a body of people, and I'm going to have this as an extended video this morning so you see how he uh, is able to share the hope that he has, how Vince Vital shares the hope that he has, and in the midst of this, and it's a little bit of a Q&A, how to rightfully answer questions. And my goal in sharing this with you is to encourage you as a believer that you do have answers for the hope that's within you. And my goal is also to encourage you to maybe discipline your life to learn and to grow and to discover how you can become better equipped to give an answer for the hope that's within you. So with that, Daniel, if you would uh, run this video, and again, I think you'll enjoy it. It's, again, testimonies. It's also going to answer some of the other questions in that stack of cards that you guys gave that uh, they do far better than I could ever do. So watch this. It'll be about 20 minutes. Thanks, Vince. You guys can pick your, pick your choice of seats, whichever you would like. I'm so glad you guys are here today. I'm going to introduce Vince first, and then, uh, Ravi, let Vince share just a little bit of his own story, because before you really want to know what somebody has to say, you really want to know who they are and where they're, where they're from in life. So Vince is uh, newly the director of the Zacharias Institute, which I hope that you'll find out more about in coming days. Actually based here in Atlanta, Georgia, a year-round equipping and training center for people to grow in their faith and their confidence in who God is. Um, and Vince is going to be heading up the work there. They've already had uh, their first major workshop just happen in the last few days. They have another one coming up in July that I'll tell you about before we end today. But Vince is educated at Princeton and Oxford, and uh, he's also a great athlete, uh, was a varsity soccer player at Princeton. So I just like to throw that in there because people are like, you can't be smart and be an athlete at the same time. You have to pick one or the other. But you managed to excel on a lot of fronts. And so... Vince, give us just a thumbnail sketch of your story and how you got to Passion City Church today. Not literally, but, you know, generally. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Louie. Yeah, wonderful to be here. My wife, Joe, and I, we just moved to Atlanta about eight months ago from Oxford, uh, England. We came to Atlanta, not, not quite as cool as outer space, um, but we're, <laughs> we're thankful to be here. And a bit about my story. I showed up at, at college. I showed up at Princeton thinking that Christianity was really for people who didn't think hard enough. You know, it's for people who had turned off their brains. I'm thankful I met a couple of people who challenged me to read the Bible for the first time. I was always good for a challenge. I started to read through, arguing my way through, crossing things out, adding things. I'd write a big BS in the margin wherever I disagreed. And uh, Christians would sort of look over my shoulder and say, Vince... Why do you have a BS in the margin of your Bible? And I'd say, oh, that verse makes for a great Bible study. <clears throat> Robbie doesn't even know what you're talking about, but it's awesome. <laughs> Just keep going. Robbie always looks away when I tell that story. <laughs> uh, that was my starting point. Thankfully, I, I kept reading, and I found myself incredibly surprised to see the Bible, it kept, I kept coming across words like convinced and reasoned and even proved uh, that God had provided confirmation for all. I found that the word persuaded 
was the word that was used most frequently for when someone became a Christian. I found the Bible asking me to love God with all of my mind. I didn't expect any of that. And then soon after that, I started to encounter some of the evidence for God, evidence from morality and science and philosophy and all different disciplines. And then eventually, I encountered the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. And this blew me away. It didn't even cross my mind that you could look back at a historical event 2,000 years ago and even consider in a rational way whether it had happened. But we have this strong historical evidence, an empty tomb, the eruption of Christianity, hundreds of people walking around utterly convinced that they were spending time with this man Jesus after he had been clearly killed. 1 Corinthians 15 will tell you about that, a passage where it says, most of whom are still living, almost as if to say, go out and ask them yourself. I absolutely couldn't believe what I was reading, and I arranged meetings with two top religion professors at Princeton, not Christians, but people who had academic expertise in the New Testament, and I thought, surely they are going to be able to give me alternative explanations, naturalistic explanations that wouldn't require me to believe in God, but would explain why there were all these people walking around so convinced they had spent time with this man after his death. And one of those professors, she glanced towards uh, a mass hallucination theory that's riddled with problems, earned no credibility in the scholarly literature. Multiple people don't have the same hallucination. The other professor told me that as a historian, he simply wasn't interested in the question. There appeared to be this assumption that as soon as you begin to talk about the miraculous, you're no longer talking about history. And I've never been able to understand why he thought that. And so for me, the, I needed some, each one of us is different, but I needed some of the intellectual objections to be cleared away so that God could have a straight path to speak to my heart. And as those intellectual objections were cleared away, he had that path. He brought in a gentle but convicting way an understanding of sin in my life. And not everyone has a, a specific moment they can point to, but I can point back to May of my freshman year in college it wasn't anything specifically in the book I was reading, but as I closed its cover, I think God knew that all these different strands were coming together in my life. It was the right time for me to know him in a deep and personal way. Uh, and I just knew that deep in my soul in a way that went so far beyond any of the probabilities I had calculated for my arguments. And I was by myself in my dorm room, but I exclaimed out loud, this really happened. Uh, and that's the moment in which I would say I stepped into a daily relationship with Christ. It's hard to put into words what that looks like and the experience of that. If you're here today, if you're not a Christian, one person that we saw become a Christian through the ministry recently, he summed it up in one sentence in a way that really spoke to my own experience. He, he prayed to receive Jesus after journeying with us for a week. And when he opened his eyes, these were the very first words out of his mouth. He said, I have always felt alone and like I had to wear a mask. But now this is the first time in my life that I can take off that mask and I can be fully myself and fully alive. And that speaks really well to my experience. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Vince. Uh, Robbie need, needs to, no introduction, but to someone who may have come with a friend today or not sure exactly who he is, I, I would take the rest of our time to introduce you, Ravi. But suffice to say, uh, born in India, I grew up as a young, uh, young, uh, younger years of life in Canada, but Ravi has traveled the globe, uh, written countless books. He's spoken in 
government situations. He's spoken on university campuses, Harvard and the like, and has been an advocate for truth and an advocate for faith for decades now. Ravi Zacharias International Ministries spans the globe. You have offices around the world. Um, people on the platform speaking for Ravi Zacharias Ministries around the world. And um, this man is a friend of leaders in every sphere of life and has spoken to people in every sphere of life, every culture on this planet and every season of life. And uh, we just are so grateful, Ravi, that you're here, but would love to hear what's the story of Ravi Zacharias? Like, how did you come to get into the lane that you're in and into the position that you're in today to talk so boldly about faith. Thank you, Louis. Nice to be here. Nice to be back with you all. I don't know when I was here last, but my wife always says when Ravi says recently, it's because he doesn't remember when. But I was here recently and was happy to be with you all. If I can just get one caveat in here, because I was listening to you all singing and watching you all worshiping. Uh, we were together in Bali, Indonesia, about 10 days ago or so, and I was speaking there, and uh, we were part of our team. And on the last day, Louis, uh, we'd all finished, the meetings were over, a couple of days of it, and the general manager of the resort where we were staying, I will not name it, uh, very high-quality resort where we were hosted, was a Muslim man. He called one of our teammates aside, and he said, I've been standing here, watching you all sing and listening to your words. He said, I've never heard anything like this in my life. Mm -hmm. This has to be Jesus. There is no other explanation. Wow. He said, can you answer my questions? And he sat down with that man and gave his life to Jesus Christ. There's a man in his 40s. So you see, uh, worship, worship is a very powerful evangel. And so thank you for the way you worship and you minister not only to God in honoring him, but to one another in seeing the beauty of Christ uh, just bring that life within you. Uh, I'll keep my story brief. Uh, I was born and raised in India, uh, born in the southern, southern city of Chennai. Uh, the language there is Tamil, raised in the northern city of Delhi. The language there is Hindi. Uh, I left India when I was 20. India has 14 major languages, hundreds of dialects, not thousands. When you go from one city to another, you're lost linguistically if you really don't know the other language. But those were the two major languages with which I grew up, which turned out to be an advantage. Not that good in, in Tamil, even though my mother was Tamilian, but very fluent in Hindi because that's where I was raised and did my university days. Aged 17, uh, I asked the question that all of you ask, and especially more so now young teens, on the, life, on the meaning of life. I had no answer. India has 330 million deities in the pantheon of Hinduism. Uh, we can just about have our own gods and worship what you will by setting up an altar. It's not to mock it, but it's a reality. You tailor-make your own deity and worship. I had no interest in religion. I didn't own a Bible. If I ever went to any religious event, it was because there was food being served there, and that's all was my interest. At age 17, I was lying in a hospital bed, having attempted to take my own life. Empty, absolutely empty. And I just cried out for help. My mother was standing by my bedside. And lo and behold, sometime later, a man walked in with a little red Gideon's New Testament. And uh, he wanted to read it to me. My mother wouldn't let him because I was in intensive care. I was not given much 
hope to live at that time. My body was dehydrated. I couldn't lift any limb. I couldn't hold uh, a Bible or a book. But he said, please, this is what your son needs more than anything else. So he read a few verses, and then she said, let me read it to him. You have to leave. And there with my mother, whose English was not that good, speaking with her heavy southern Indian accent, reading from the King James, and talking to me about Jesus, saying, because I live, you also shall live. When you're in desperate straits, you really are longing to find a branch to hold on to. And I said, Jesus, if you are who you claim to be, please answer my prayer. I do not know what living means. And help me. I cried out to him. Five days later, the doctor, when he released me, sat by my bed. He looked at me, and in Hindi, he said to me, Beta, Beta means son. He said, Beta, I have given you your life, but I cannot make you want to live. Never forget that line. I cannot make you want to live. And I looked at him and said, Doctor, I think that's already been taken care of. And I walked out of there with a newfound faith in Christ. I'm 71 now. So 54 years ago, that happened. I only find Jesus more exciting, more enchanting, more vibrant. And the more I see of this world, the more I'm convinced outside of him, there are no answers to the deepest questions of your soul. So thank you for having me here. My conversion took place in India. My baptism in Toronto, Canada. My wife is Canadian. I now live in Atlanta. And without GPS, I could never find my way, but thank God I'm here. We're getting some great questions coming in, and they're being forwarded to me, uh, which is amazing. I want to back up before we take a few of these and just ask some of the bigger questions about Christianity, because now we're at Jesus. We've arrived. Both of you have come to a place of faith. But I want to ask, um, is it arrogant to claim that Jesus is the only way of salvation? You know, Louis, it it may sound it. Uh, Truth, by definition, is exclusive. Truth, by definition, is exclusive. It excludes the opposite. If Jesus were not the only way, all you're looking at is a smorgasbord or a buffet line of preferential religious cuisine. Take what you will. But when you are in a court of law or when you are talking about propositional reality and truth statements, all religions are exclusive. People only hit at the Christian faith because they know if they hit some other faiths, they will not be doing any hitting the next day. Uh, They will be silenced. All religions are exclusive. Islam is exclusive. Buddhism is exclusive in the sense that Gautama Buddha was born a Hindu and he rejected two of the major doctrines of Hinduism, the Vedas and the caste system, and he found his own fourfold paths and eightfold truths and so on. Even the Hindu faith, even though there's a plurality of deities and many ways of expressing, they are exclusive with two claims. They will never, no matter what brand of Hinduism you believe in, you will always believe in these two doctrines. The law of karma, that every birth is a rebirth in which you pay for the previous birth, and the law of reincarnation. So you cannot even talk to them about it is appointed unto man once to die, and after that the judgment, which is the teaching of the scriptures. They are exclusionary in their claim to reincarnation and karma. 
all religions are not fundamentally the same. They are fundamentally different, at best superficially similar. But only in the Christian faith, only in the Christian faith, no other worldview, I dare you to think about this, only in the Christian faith is forgiveness offered as a gift of grace and not something that is earned. Every other worldview, you earn your salvation. You ask a Muslim, how do you get to paradise? Your good deeds have to outweigh your bad deeds. You ask a Hindu, how do you get to moksha or nirvana? And his or her answer will be uh, that you have to pay the karmic law and the karmic cycle. Christ offers you forgiveness by taking the judgment of sin upon him and giving you the grace and mercy. That's why the fascinating part of the prodigal son story is not so much that he returned, but that the father left the home to run out and meet him and uh, receiving back and tell him this my son was lost and is now found. All truth is exclusive. The question is, are you able to defend that exclusivity with grace and love? Right. <clears throat> so... You both are referencing scripture, and I think uh, this is probably a question that several people would have here today. Uh, skeptics, many skeptics claim that the Bible is a mixture of fable and error. How can we know that it is trustworthy and exclusive? Take a start on that. And just, just real quick on, on the last question as well, just, just one, one line I find helpful sometimes is why is Jesus the only way to eternal life? Well, it's because Jesus is eternal life. That's what eternal life is. It's relationship with him. And so sometimes people want to say, well, why can't I just be good? Well, the reason is because even though God wants us to be good, even more than that, he wants us to be in relationship with himself. And you can only do that by actually interacting with a person. No matter how I try to be good to other people, if I'm not actually interacting with my wife, Joe, I'm not in relationship with her. It's two different categories. This is a great question about the Bible. Like I said, it was part of my starting point that I was really skeptical of the Bible. I also had a complete, I think, misconception about what the Bible was. You know, I thought it was supposed to be a science textbook. I thought it was supposed to be uh, a rule book. I think about it very differently now. Uh, when my wife Joe and I were starting to get to know each other, I was uh, wondering, hoping that she liked me. Uh, and there was a point where she wrote a 42-page double-sided letter to me back from Mongolia where she was traveling. And I thought, this is a good sign. <laughs> and then before we got engaged, uh, she wrote me a list of 40 things that no one else knew about her that she wanted me to know before we took that step. A really beautiful thing to do. Absolutely traumatizing, but... Uh, <laughs> but a really beautiful thing to do. And, I, and the Bible is like that. Joe wrote me a 42-page letter. God has written us this thousands of pages of wanting us to know who he is and what he's been doing and what he cares about and how he wants us to interact with him. And then getting on to that question of reliability, well, one thing we can know is that the Bible we hold in our hands today, it is the same as the Bible that was initially written. And we can know that because we have so many manuscript copies of the Bible from all different times and in all different places of the world. Sometimes people think that what happened was that the stories just developed over time in a sort of legendary sort of way. A bit like the game Telephone. You know, I, I say, um, you know, hi, how you doing to the person over here? And they say that to the person next to them. By the time we get to the back of the room, Jesus rose from the dead. That sort of thing. 
you can't say that because what we have with the Bible is this text here initially, and then it being copied, and different branches going out in different directions, in different places. And then several generations down the line, you can compare all of those different manuscripts, and they all look almost identical. And if nine of them look the same and one of them has a word that's different, well, you know very simply which one has it wrong. And you can correct it by that reason. So we know the Bible we have today is the Bible that it was originally. Then the question is, is that a reliable document in the first place? And I think really the reliability is in the details. Wonderful studies. You look at the names that are used in the New Testament. They correspond exactly to the names that should have been used at that time. Names change every 60 or 100 years. You look at all of the details, the, the, the understanding of geography, the places, the names of roads, the fact that there are sycamore fig trees in Jericho and not in other places. The Bible gets all of the details right. And honestly, unless you are coming with a predisposition against miracles... You cannot deny that the Bible is the most attested, historically reliable, ancient book that there is, full stop. The question then for us is, why do we take it not just as a reliable book, but actually as an authority in our lives? And for me, the way this happened was it started with Jesus. My first question was, who did Jesus claim to be? And as I read through the scriptures, I realized time and time again, he claimed to be the source of eternal life, someone who could forgive sins. If you've seen him, you've seen the Father. I am one with the Father. I am. Did he make good on that claim? And like I've already shared with you, he rose from the dead, so he made good on that claim. So then my next question was, how did Jesus treat the scriptures of his day? And he treated them as an authority. He said not one stroke of a pen will be removed from the scriptures, when he's tempted by Satan in the desert, he goes to the scriptures and he quotes them as authority. Sometimes he makes conclusions based on just a, a simple clause or a specific word in the scriptures. So I started with Jesus. Who did he claim to be? Did he show me I can trust him in that claim? How did he treat the scriptures of his day? That gives me a model for how I should treat the scriptures of my day. I can add a footnote to that too. I think everything that has been covered here I hope you will reflect on it and what Vince has said. I try to put it as kind of a four or five C test. The Bible is a confluence of writers. It is not a single writer. There is a consistence in the truth from Genesis to Revelation. There is the character of God and the person of Jesus Christ that you see emerging so unique. There is a correspondence with fact you check it against its assertions and its claims. You know, uh, Bart Ehrman, one of the critics of the Bible, makes the comment about how could Jesus really be God uh, when, you know, he claims that the hour of his return is not known by any, not the Son of Man. This is where, may I dare make a comment to you, the Eastern mind would never have reacted the way Ehrman did. Never. Because when I read that, the first reaction I had was, wow. If Jesus were a charlatan and a crook and a pretender, do you know what his answer would have been? I know when I'm coming back, but I'm not telling you. All I need to know is when it is. 
But when you look at uh, Philippians 2, who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon himself the form of a servant, being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto that. Goes all the way to the cross till his final exaltation. In the kenosis theory, the emptying theory, there were renunciations and privileges that he renounced for himself. A voluntary renunciation. And that, to me, says how humbling, even though it was humiliating, was the very person of Christ. His character is supreme. And, of course, in his infinite reality, he would know everything there was to know. But in the incarnate reality, even in his death on the cross, he forfeited that right and so graciously admitted even that human limitation. So there is the character, the correspondence, and finally there is the critical nature to it all. When you analyze all of the scripture texts and how God spoke, I want to add just one more thing which is very important here. Please follow me. Because we live in a different type of mindset. We want experience. We want extraordinary exaltation and thrills. There was no greater thrill afforded to the disciples than the Mount of Transfiguration. There were only three of them who were taken up to the top. And as the body of our Lord was transfigured into the whitest whiteness that the human eye could ever absorb, they fell flat on their faces and just imagine the two people for whom God alone was the undertaker, Moses and Elijah, are there standing with Jesus at the top of the mountain. And these boys now are flat on their faces. What greater experience would you have wanted than to be on that mountain and seeing the body of our Lord transfigured? Peter refers to this in Second Peter 1. We were eyewitnesses to his majesty. We saw all of this, he says, but now we have the word of the prophets made more certain. He takes the written word as transcending even that momentary experience of thrill. We need to realize how the Eastern mind really thinks in this. Thy word is truth. The scriptures cannot be broken. Heaven and earth may pass away, but the word of the Lord abides forever. This book is a sacred trust with a confluence over 1,500 years of 40 authors, 66 books, and the correspondence to truth, and ultimately all the critical material has withstood it. If you look at the Quran, it's only one author. You look at the Vedas all the way to the Gita, you see a multiplicity of writings that are not even often sure. That's why they often refer to it as Hindu mythology. That word is truth. You've got these multiple authors pointing to one person and the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. There is no other book in this world like this one. And this book offers life to you and to me. Treasure it and hold it. It has the words of eternal life. Thank you for taking those moments. Amen. I'm going to have the ushers just come and receive the Lord's tithes and offerings, our connection cards as we end. We'll mix the refrain of reckless love. <clears throat> my exposure to Ravi and his ministry through my years has buoyed me up and strengthened me to be able to give an answer for the hope that is within me. And so I just want to encourage you um, to become better equipped. And it takes discipline. It's going to take time and margin in your life. 
even something like the RZIM Academy that's listed in your program, that could be a tool for you to become better equipped. I believe our world desperately, desperately needs messengers with beautiful feet that are coming to bring good news. Some of our hesitation is because of challenging questions. I've learned over the years to say, that's a great question. I don't know the answer to that. But I'm willing to seek out and try to help you find that answer. Jesus Christ, who said, I am the way and the truth and the life, we proclaim him as the answer. And Ravi would always teach us in the courses I took with him, if we claim that Jesus Christ is the answer, then he has to have a answer for the person that's asking that question. So thank you for engaging with that. Um, we're going to step into a transition next week as we sort of all get gathered back and head into school season in the fall and what God has for us. But I just want to pray a blessing over you as you go today, this week, in deed and in word, you are being sent. Lord Jesus, may we worship you in the beauty of your holiness. As Peter fell down on that Mount of Transfiguration, Lord, we cannot comprehend you in all your beauty and your holiness and your love. But Lord, may you strengthen and equip us to get up and to come down from mountaintop experiences of worship and to go out into the highways and the byways of life, our workplace, our social arenas, our school environments, and may we be ambassadors of your good news. Lord, send us so that we can help people to know you, to come to believe in you, to be saved and to have hope eternal and hope in the present. May you abide with and bless each and every person here and the families represented. In your name, God's people said, amen. You're dismissed. You guys have a good week. A strong and perfect plea The great high priest whose name is love Whoever lives and pleads for me